As you watch the screen, your heart begins to beat faster. There's a fluttering in the pit of your stomach. Your throat is dry. Your palms damp. Suddenly a chill runs down your spine. You clutch the person next to you. You tell yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. But sooner or later, it's time to go home. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Ron. And I'm Brian. This is our review of The Last House on the Left, starring Sandra Peabody, Lucy Grantham, David Hess, Fred Lincoln, Jeremy Rain, Mark Scheffler, Richard Towers, and Cynthia Carr. Written directed by Wes Craven, produced by Sean S. Cunningham, released in 1972 on a budget of around $90,000, grossed $3.1 million at the box office, and is held up by many film critics and horror fans alike as one of the seminal horror films of all time. All right, right, Jay. So why exactly are we talking about this movie? Yeah, right. We're beginning Shocktober here, and you're going, where's our Friday the 13th? Where's our Nightmare on Elm Street? And it's in those two... Last names I read there in the opener, Wes Craven and Sean S. Cunningham. Of course, Craven behind Nightmare on Elm Street and Sean S. Cunningham, the producer of the Friday the 13th movies, at least some of them. And I thought, you know, we we need a kickoff movie, I felt like, for our Big Shocktober series. We're going to do both of those, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, and... You know, I'm doing one of them with with you, Ron, and the other one with Brian, and then we were going to culminate in the end and do Freddy versus Jason sort of together. And I thought, well, we need a, a beginning part of this program, and then you know, we can come back to it with Freddy versus Jason. And on a, a complete whim, I didn't even know this was the case. I thought, is there anything these two guys have worked on together besides you know both names being on Freddy versus Jason and their involvement in that is you know very varied to say the least. And we'll get to that in a few months, but. I was surprised to find out that Last House on the Left was a collaboration between the two of them because Craven apparently had done some editing work on something Cunningham had directed and it, it made it profitable. And so Cunningham said, I'll produce whatever you want to do. And this is what they came up with. And I thought, you know what? I've seen the 2009 version of Last House on the Left with Tony Goldwyn and Monica Potter. I had never seen the original. And I thought, ah, okay, this will be a good excuse. And I want to apologize to you two guys and to everybody else <laughs> right now that I decided this was where we needed to start the series. But yeah, I, th- that was it. I thought, hey, this is a good starting point because I thought if nothing more, if we're going to do a little horror homework here, if you will, to start our series, is there anything in this film that, maybe we see again in the Friday series and the nightmare series. No. Um, knives. Blood. There's nudity. Chainsaws. No, there's no chainsaws. No, there's one. There's one in one of those, one of those, uh, Friday movies. Uh, um, Steve Miner. Yes. He was assistant editor on this particular (laughs) movie and he did some of the better Friday the 13th. Also directed H2O, Brian's favorite Halloween movie. So, um, 
that's that's to be yeah he's part of the the crew here too so now had either of you seen this 1972 feature beforehand though oh hell no yes i had seen it um, whoa you didn't stop him <laughs> this was before i i knew jay um i went on a kick to watch a bunch of directors first movies um and this was one of the ones i watched um unfortunately <laughs> but yeah. you didn't bother to say are you sure you want to do this jay <laughs> actually you were surprised by the little factoid too if memory serves ron you didn't put it together that cunningham and craven had done this together it, it had been so long since i'd seen this movie that and i worked so hard to put it out of my mind that yeah <laughs> that that it completely taken took me by surprise so now the brian I'm, I'm, you, go ahead I'm still blown away that it made $3.1 million at the box office. Now, in today's money, that's nothing, but 1972? Well, on a budget of $90,000, though, that well, made everybody – everybody got rich on that. <laughs> I mean, I, I would dare say, and I don't know it for a fact, I bet Craven made a better percentage off of this than he did the first Nightmare film. So, <laughs> I, mean, I think that – because it grows so much on that tight budget is why he got the nightmare film. Well, and no doubt. I mean, that's how it happened. And, you know, Carpenter got future work after making so much out of Halloween. You know, that was a $300,000 movie that made way beyond that. So, uh, so yeah, I, that, that's what happens. A lot of first time directors, right? They, they come out of the gate, their thing is successful. And then now they get work because, they turn stuff in on time. They they make profits. Look, for everybody who wants to bang on Michael Bay and Brett Ratner, and, and for good reason in a lot of ways, with those guys, they turn in stuff on time under budget, and it always makes money. You know, Kevin Smith's a guy that I've I've you know liked and not liked a lot of his career, and have really kind of fallen out with him in terms of enjoying his stuff. But he turns in stuff on time under budget, and it makes money. He's never lost money on a film. So there, there's something to be said for guys in Hollywood that can do that. And particularly in this time of era of film, I mean, you're talking about the 70s. This was the, the end of the studio system was coming in, you know, maybe 10 years, the 10, 15 years. That was, they were all going to be corporations after that. But these independent directors were starting to rise up out of places like New York and Northern California and lots of different places. And Craven and Cunningham were New York guys. You know, and they, they were East Coasters, and uh, they, I, I'll tell you, I mean, Craven will tell you in all the, the material that's recorded, because he's gone now, but about this is that he made this film with absolutely he no inhibition at all. He just said, I'm just going to do everything, and I'm not going to censor any of it. He, didn't even, he wasn't even aware the MPAA was a thing. Sean Cunningham had to tell him, <laughs> dude, this is going to get cut to pieces. And Cunningham makes jokes that, like, they, they spent years reclaiming prints from different places that had shown this film, trying to cut together an original version of it because people did just cut it to bits at the time. Projectionists, the theater owners, stuff like that. So, you know, how did it make this kind of money? I think word of mouth and the shock value of it. I mean, let's, let's talk about shock exploitation cinema. Ron, if anybody's an expert on that of our crew, you are because not only because you watch it, but you've written a lot about it too over at Den of Geek. Yes. Uh, I have, and a lot of uh, and a lot of exploitation cinema is basically there just for shock value. I mean, you may be trying to say something, but what you're saying has to be spliced in between some graphic murders, some pointless nudity, uh, some you know maybe some cannibalism. Uh, you, you've got a there are certain 
uh, tropes that you have to hit. There are certain boundaries you have to push um, as an exploitation movie. And this hits a lot of them because it's just chock full of everything people were afraid of in the 70s. Except for good dialogue. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You ever watch a lot of 70s cinema? I mean, some of it ain't that grand, man. I'm going to tell you, some of it's pretty bad. It's not all Robert Altman movies. (laughs) (laughs) That is for sure. But yeah, this is definitely one of the the big tent poles of the of exploitation flicks in the seventies. Cause you've got a lot of imitators of last house on the left came, came after this. Like, you know, you've got your eyes spit on your graves. You got, uh, even, uh, Wes Craven's next movie or one of his next movies, the Hills have eyes takes a lot of the same kind of elements of people trapped in a strange environment, surrounded by a bunch of dangerous rednecks. Oh, exactly. And well, and who can forget like Texas Chainsaw Massacre? I, I was sitting there watching this, going, "Man, I I had no idea Toby Hooper, in between smoking joints, was watching this movie on the set of that." Because Jeepers Creepers, there's so much of this that I see in that original Chainsaw flick. Oh yeah, definitely. It's like what uh, I like how you mentioned that uh, Wes Craven basically left everything in because it, it it really shows. Because this movie is just all over the place. Like, <laughs> this is cocaine the movie. <laughs> it, real. It, well, it's cocaine with John Denver. That's the that's the other part. We're going to talk about the, the music used in this. Oh, this yeah. is an example. Like, they've got to show this as an example of how to not score your film. And oddly oh. enough, on my DVD, there's a feature on scoring, Last House on the Left. And I was like, holy cow, they actually put thought into this. Well, and they had a band they're going to see called Bloodlust, and they're playing that kind of crap. I, yeah, oh, I love. I was the expecting some good yeah. metal music. In '72, though, that would have been what Black Sabbath. Uh, yeah, that that would have oh, been yeah. it. <laughs> so I don't even think Maiden and Judas Priest were around at that point. At least not in the mainstream. Not famous. Not where teenage girls would go see them. So uh, no, but they, you had a, you had Thin Lizzy and Black Sabbath at that point, and mm-hmm. a few metal bands that were out there and King with a name yeah with the name well that was england but if you had a name like bloodlust you would think that would be more the type of music you'd hear not the <laughs> the crap we heard not the easy 70s listening <laughs> i see the flowers in the trees as it's cut you know i mean it's really messed up so or maybe Love it's that. maybe it's the greatest use of ironic music ever i don't know but, uh, you know, to me, that'll always be Mr. Sandman at the beginning of Halloween, too. But uh, we talked about that a lot. But I guess we should do a plot summary, maybe for the uninitiated. I, I, I'm <laughs> going to say, in case you haven't seen this and you're listening to us before you watch it, don't watch it. We'll, we'll tell you what happens. You don't need to lay eyes, necessarily. You can decide after we talk about all of it if you want to. But I, I can't wait for this plot summary, either, because I don't know <laughs> that there was a plot to this fucking thing. <laughs> well, it is the best I can do. So Mary is about to turn 17, and while trying to score some weed before a concert, bloodlust, as Brian's mentioned, with her friend Phyllis, they cross paths with a group of escaped psychotic convicts. The convicts, Krug, Weasel, and their companions, the sadistic Sadie and drug addict Junior, take turns brutalizing and torturing the girls throughout the night and into the next day. When Phyllis finally makes a run for it, Krug, Weasel, and Sadie give chase, and Mary, realizing she is near her family's country home, tries to reason with Junior to let her escape. 
After killing Phyllis, the other three stop Marion Jr. and brutalize her and murder her, leaving her body in a lake. The foursome then clean up and stop by the Collinwoods' house, uh, Mary's parents, masquerading as traveling salespeople. Mary's parents dine with the group and even agree to let them stay overnight. But when Mrs. Collinwood finds the, their bloody clothes and her daughter's necklace, she realizes, along with the doctor, that something's wrong. They rush to the woods and they find Mary's body. The parents then exact their revenge on the house guest as one by one they're taken out. Mrs. Collingwood seduces Weasel to go outside for a little romp and then bites his penis off and leaves him to bleed to death. Krug and the doctor fight until Junior intervenes with a gun. However, the mentally weak Junior turns the weapon on himself after taunting from Krug. Mrs. Collingwood catches up with Sadie and slits her throat and Dr. Collingwood eventually kills Krug with a chainsaw just as the most inept police force known to man shows up to the carnage and the credits roll. And that is the plot summary as best I could see it for Last House on the Left without getting into the gory details. Unbelievable. I think you've already gotten into some of the gory details, but with the biting off of a penis. Well, I, I, that was such, <laughs> that was so ev- evocative and the way that was set up. And I mean, I'm sitting there. Uh oh. Jay went silent. Oh. Oh, anyway, well, yeah, we'll get there. But, uh, it's you went pretty, silent. It's pretty brutal. Uh, I I must have hit the mute button. Can you hear me now? Yep. Yes. Well, it's been recording on my end the whole time, so yeah. Good. We'll we'll fix that. <laughs> All right. So I think a way to do this though, because as Brian has alluded, the, the plot here is really thin. That's strung together. This movie's eighty four minutes. It could have been about thirty. I think there's a lot of. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, watching this, I felt like man, Wes Craven must have shot some of the greatest PBS nature documentaries I watched, and I just never knew. Oh, yeah, I was they, just, how many times do they use the ducks in the pond? <laughs> At least three. <laughs> I was just, uh, as I watched it again, I was uh, uh, watching it for the podcast. I was like, man, this is like B-roll the motion picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to say it. <laughs> uh, it. It does feel like, and maybe this is what was spliced together after what was left when they sent this out, but it does feel like just a lot of tracking shots and things. I think one of my favorite ones is when the girls are in an ice cream parlor and they do like a fast pan across the menu. It's like something I would shoot on vacation when I was 13, you know, like, Oh, here's the menu. You know, my, my favorite part of that scene is when she says, what are you getting? Oh, I'm getting pepper or uh, peppermint chocolate chip. Oh, I don't like that. Can I try yours? I know. Yeah. Like there's what? a whole dialogue about ice cream in this. Uh, yeah. It's, it's weird. You um, just said you don't like it. Why don't you want to try it? I am. I am convinced if there was a script that the dialogue was large chunks of, and now the girls talk about ice cream. It and was these an two outline, ad- Jay. We and, know it. It was just two, an outline. Yeah. These, it was, it actually yeah. was an outline. And I, and I heard a lot of, uh, the dialogue was improvised, which is probably why it all sucks. Obvious. Oh, see, I did not it's know obvious. that, it, and I can believe that completely because, yes, the dialogue is absolutely awful. And <laughs> Brian, you you mentioned to me, you're like, it's hard to believe that the guy that wrote Nightmare wrote this. And I want you to remember that when we review that first Nightmare movie, because I'm going to tell you right okay. now, the dialogue in that blows. Well, sure, but it's witty. I, probably there's, there's because Craven didn't write it. So. And humor in there. Not in this. No, th- not. you're you're right. This movie is stark and dare I say it, bare naked in front of us here. And it is it is concocted to offend. Like 
Craven will tell you that his entire idea was how sick can I show this and show also that good normal people can be just as sick and twisted. I think that's the theme of the film here, ultimately. Okay. It's so bizarre, Jay. I mean, it starts off, what, they're sitting there and the, the daughter comes down and the father's getting on her case for not wearing a bra. Yeah, that was that stuck out like a sore nipple. It was just <laughs> it was just the weirdest thing to start your movie off with. It's like, okay, is this going to be like some kind of incest picture? Oh, right? Really? I I cannot imagine any father, even a medical doctor who, you know, may be immune to all of the anatomy of life or whatever, to having that conversation with his teenage daughter and then the mother weighing in too. And they have this whole conversation about, you know, styles of underwear. So I'm like, I, <laughs> no one talks like even today in the over sexualized world we live in, in the 2010s. Like, I don't think people thought like this is it. Maybe the Kardashians. And, and what, what self-respecting father, especially back in the 1970s would say to their daughter, who's going to the, rough neighborhood to watch a concert that it's okay to go brawless you're 16 go for it and it and it also sets the movie up as like oh well she's clearly a slut so i guess she deserves all this ouch it's, See? it's, it's yeah. almost yeah it's like it's setting her up for some premeditated I, slut shaming see now i i i i didn't see that with her i saw it with her friend Right, she seemed yeah. like the kind of person Phyllis, who was Phyllis, like, who gives was it up to anyone who wants it. Who was cooling stolen liquor in the nearby lake, which I thought good idea, <laughs> uh, you know, ingenious, uh, maybe. But yeah, uh, you know, I didn't get the sense that either of these girls were particularly slutty necessarily. I did read off of them that they were part of that, and even the mom drops a line about the free love society and stuff like that. That they were just a, a reflection of that youth culture that was much freer with their sexuality and their bodies than previous ones have been, particularly the, the 50 set, you know, parents, right? I don't know. Those parents seem pretty active with each other. I was about to get to that, but then (laughs) Craven goes out of his way to show us these parents like, can't wait for the kid to leave. So that they can like get Randy after they make a cake together. Right. Uh, Oh, what a great cake too. Huh? (laughs) The the, the store-bought ones are better. He, I like that he takes this little dab and puts on his tongue and he's like, yum. <laughs> Terrible. That's another like pre-Texas Chainsaw Massacre kind of trope that 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 Wes Craven has tapped into, like the death of the free love generation. Because yeah. that was the one of the whole big themes of uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The first one is that they massacre a bunch of hippies. Um, and, you know, here we've got a couple of uh, – brawless flower children who are about to walk into some chaos that they can't handle but but the girls though they talk about this like they have this whole conversation when they're walking in the woods together in scene number seven of that where the one girl's going can't you notice the difference they came in this year i'm like i mean this is the point my my (laughs) wife watched about uh, my wife watched about 15 minutes of this with me and she's like sitting there with this corkscrew look on her face, and I'm like, at no time do women like talk to each other like this, right? Like, not in real life. She said, only in some 13-year-old boy's fantasy. And that's when I realized that Wes Craven had decided to shoot his 13-year-old fantasy. It's, I mean, this can only be the stuff that is of 
that ilk, right? Like that's the mindset, at least at play here, because to say the women here are objectified is not even covering it. Well, just the fact that she says they came in, you know, I didn't have them last summer. And the other girl goes, I didn't know you last summer. What yeah. the hell? I mean, come on. You could tell, yeah, this is definitely an ad-lib movie all the way. And, and and can you really call what she's got breasts? Like, is that is that all that's going to come in? Yeah, probably. It was it was the seventies. I mean, yeah. the, the opening shot of the movie is her in the shower. For goodness sakes, <laughs> yeah. you know. Like at first, I thought, is this the mom in the shower? Oh, no, that's <laughs> what is, I thought too. This yeah. is the teenage girl. I was like, well, that's you know unnerving and off putting. Like I think what it is here, guys, is normally these things are tropes of films that are supposed to be like tantalizing, right, titillating, if you will. But they're presented in a way to make you really uncomfortable and off you know, off kilter and then the dialogue aids in that because it's so awkward and weird and, and strange and overly done and so when all the violent stuff starts to happen it's like the next progression of it right yeah i, I think you've got a good point there it, it really is a it, it's really is a deliberately off-putting movie um, and it's really successful at being uncomfortable yeah, definitely. The the rape scenes alone. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, and we we can gloss through those in a minute. But let's talk about, though, we talked about Mary and Phyllis a little bit. Let's continue and, and talk about the parents here a little bit. Estelle and Dr. Collingwood. I don't know if we ever get a name on him, but I called him Mr. Dr. and Mrs. the whole time. But they, they seemed like they were straight out of, like, I don't know, man, like... Uh, all in the, the family Brady bunch or yeah, Brady bunch extras, something. I mean, they were, they were like square, but then when they got alone, they were, you know, they were just the same thing that they thought their teenager was. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My wife kept commenting on the, the woman's sideburns. <laughs> it was she the 70s. She couldn't believe it. <laughs> we had nothing better to talk about during this movie. So <laughs> clearly, <laughs> <laughs> But no, I mean, what did you make of them though as characters? They're, I mean, they're paper thin, obviously, but I mean, I, I felt like we didn't really know them, and that they were also the most trusting humans on the planet when they do let these strange people into their house and it's like, yeah, you can crash here with us. And I thought, is that the way it was in the seventies? We just lived in that innocent of time. Like nowadays, oh, you don't, you don't walk outside to your mailbox without locking the door. Yeah, it was definitely that way all the way up till probably the nineties, dude. They 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 really reminded me of a couple from a different Wes Craven movie, uh, Mommy and Daddy from The People Under the Stairs. Oh wow, I've never thought about that, but that is a great point. Yeah, they they do feel like Everett McGill and, and yeah, the same life. like Bizarro World, nineteen fifties meets uh, you know dirty modern times kind of parent figure. Okay, first of all, convenience that her body just so happens to wash up in their backyard. Nice. But after they find the body and all the clues, here he is downstairs looking for things to, I don't know, attack them with. And the one thing I didn't get is they show this elaborate setup of him like running these wires and 
and making these booby traps, and yet none of them ever come into play. Uh, not not true. Not true. The electrical one to the door, that's how Krug doesn't get away at the end, is he grabs that door latch and gets shocked back onto the ground. That's Okay, th- that's so the I must one have been off. real pissed off at this point that I totally <laughs> missed that. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it, it's the last three minutes of the film, granted. How so, does it yeah. electrocute him? He doesn't even attach it to anything. He puts it under a rug. And then pour some sort of chemical on it. I think that's supposed to be like the thing that the water or whatever the wet that will conduct the electricity through the shoes somehow. I I don't know. They don't the explain it from where. But from the wall, there is a socket. He does, like he's pulling he wires out of a socket. Plug it in. No, he's got this wire. He's running around and wrapping around shit, and he never plugs it into anything. He goes right <laughs> up to a, a wall socket. And gets ready to, he splays the wires and everything like he's going to hook it up and never does. But at least they make use of the uh, trip line and the shaving cream home alone trap. The shaving cream, that that was good. You know, that that actually worked. It was a home alone trap. You're right. I I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then he has the, the wherewithal to grab a shotgun. (laughs) It only puts one shell in and completely. That up. Well, he, but he even makes a joke out of it later when he almost gets shot with it. He's a sorry, Krug only had one shell, and then he comes at him with the with the chainsaw. I mean, I actually I thought that was kind of clever. Is that he's running around just looking for stuff at random. He can't find anything, so he's like, <laughs> "Screw it, I'll just go with the one." And you know, he just he's out of his mind. I mean, that let's not forget what they found and what they saw had happened to their daughter. These people lost their minds. I mean, they're absolutely. But here's the thing. They took off running from that house. Like they were running through the woods. Like they knew exactly where they were going to find their daughter. Right. They find the daughter and then decide, let's go back and murder them. I can only imagine that as the mom is feeling the bloody clothes and the necklace and all that stuff, she feels that they're wet because they've washed off in that lake. And maybe she's like, oh, it's that it's the duck pond, you know, just down the road. I mean, we get a shot when they're down there. Mary looks and that when they first pull them out of the dang trunk, they're right by her driveway. And and the stupid cops, I love the cop that hits himself in the head like, we should have looked at that car. You know, (laughs) so missing (laughs) persons in the area and there's a strange car with the trunk pop. No, that ain't got nothing to do with it. You know, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) Gomer and Goober here are taking over for Andy on the weekend. Because, by the way, did you notice the deputy who that was, Brian? It's the sensei from Cobra Kai in in The Karate Kid. I, I thought it was John Travolta. It it does have that Travolta like chin. You're right. I even commented. I was like, "How do you shave that dimple? Like, I don't know how you get into that." But uh, maybe somebody can tell me on the forums. You can tell I, I invested in this. I was. There were parts of this movie where I'm sitting there going, "Like, really? Do I even have to listen to this anymore?" So, <laughs> what'd you think of the old the old uh, lady with the chickens? Missing oh, all of her teeth. The lady in the front the with the teeth. Yeah, let's talk about seventies exploitation. The the rural black person <laughs> hauling the chickens everywhere stops and tells them to get on the roof. Now, I mean, social right away you knew that was a bad idea. Social justice warrior PC bro would lose his mind over that these days. <laughs> you could, you wouldn't do it anyway. You don't. They don't do it. You wouldn't do it anyway. But back then you did. And again, I think that was an evocative kind of thing. I, Ron hit on it. 
everything in this movie is deliberately set up to piss somebody off. Like, there's nobody to latch onto. You don't like any of these people. There's no reason to like any of them. They're all horrible. And we haven't even talked about the convicts yet. We've talked about the four main <laughs> protagonists. We haven't even talked about the killers. Yeah, our so-called heroes are are creepier than the killers. That's probably because they're actually fleshed out. Let's talk about Krug, Weasel, Sadie, and Junior for a minute, if we can. Um, I don't know any of these people from anything else. Apparently, David Hess, who plays Krug, was like a hit singer-songwriter, and one of his big ones was All Shook Up, which Elvis made a hit out of. So go figure that out. That that dude incredibly is, sad is. now. <laughs> it, it ruins that song for you, doesn't it? Forever. So, but these, I, I mean, they could not have caricatured four more repugnant people in my mind at all. Oh yeah, you've got well, Krug gets his own son addicted to heroin to control him. <laughs> I, I was really confused for a little while as to whose son was whose because I was like, that dude doesn't look old enough to have a son that old. Like right? the gray-headed weasel, I thought he was Krug for so long. I had that totally <laughs> screwed up in my notes forever. It took me a long time to get that sorted out. It doesn't really make a difference. It, it really doesn't. You're right, but it. You agree with me, right? Krug and Junior do not look like father and son. Well, they actually look a lot alike as far as style and hair and everything else goes. But, yeah, they both look like they're the same age. Yeah, I would have taken them as, like, brothers or something. I, right. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't get the whole thing. But you're right. He gets his own son addicted to smack so he can control him. There's your drug. Brilliant. You know, reference of the, the day, right? Writing that down. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you got three tries coming up with that. So. <laughs> so. But no, it, really, uh, yeah. I, I didn't like. Yeah. What was the deal with Sadie? Was she some sort of wild animal person? They I, describe I her as an as an animal like woman, and I'm like, I don't understand what that means. She's just kind <laughs> of, I don't know. She seems crazy though. She seems like she's on heroin. No, she's too active to be on heroin. She seems like she's on speed. Yeah. Right, me too. Definitely. She's on something psychotic. That's yeah, or she's just freaking nuts. That maybe that could she, be it too. I mean, maybe she's supposed to be like a stand-in for one of the Manson girls, and she's just had her uh, brain fried by LSD. Okay, I got this whole Manson girl vibe off of her because, mm -hmm. and this is this is awful because I'm actually going to talk about a, a person that really existed in life now. There's a TV movie of a famous murder that that happened in the late '70s. Um, at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, called Fatal Vision. I've read the book, and it, you know, all the case on the stuff is Jeffrey McDonald murders. But one of the people involved in that side story that he tried to pin it on was the hippies did it, and there was this woman that ran around the area called Helena Stokely that was supposedly involved in this. Now, the real Helena Stokely was this real kind of demure, quiet woman, but the woman they got to play in the TV movie, I swear, it's this, it's this woman's younger sister. I mean, she looks just mm. like Jeremy Rain. She acts like her, but it's supposed to be based off like Manson family era hippies. And I had the same note. I was like, Manson family. Like, this girl wasn't cool enough to be in the Manson family because this is in New York, we found out, because they're trying to get to Canada. But she's she's obsessed with that. And she's constantly teasing her hair. And my wife asked me, is she having sex with one of them while they're driving down the road and, like, he's sitting yes, next to his buddy? Yes, she is. Yes, she is. Okay, see, again, something thrown in there simply to to offend and throw us off our game, right? Because there's it's nothing... a long damn scene, too. It's a long drive, apparently. 
uh, and we have to have <laughs> sex the whole time. Well, I guess I guess Richard Dreyfus saw something he liked in that scene because he married her. I did not know Richard Dreyfus was married to this woman. Oh yeah, no, no way. Are they still together or? No, they got divorced in like the nineties, but they have three kids together. Holy cow! Uh, can you imagine like growing up and your kids are discovering your career and they're like, I mean, you thought Sydney from Scream was screwed up when she found out what a hoe her mom was, you know? <laughs> imagine what these kids thought. Like, holy cow, mom! They were married for twelve years. Wow! And she, she only did three movies, and they were all like filthy grindhouse movies. I yeah, I, she she's the one of all of them. That I just felt like the, I I just got like this grimy sort of I need to go take a shower, you know. After watching this, like she just is so off-putting, and I think that's on purpose. Like she's the one that plays with the you know Phyllis's insides and they cut her open and she's disemboweling yeah. her and all that, that was crap. Gross. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, that, they all they all kind of look like they smell, but she looks like she smells the worst. Really? Yeah. And like when the first assault happens inside of the the room. They have like Mary standing back with Junior, and she's like, "No, no!" And all you hear is this stuff on the ground. And what you realize is that Krug, Weasel, and Sadie are all taking turns on Phyllis. Which oh is, yeah, and you got the vibe that she was down for that right away. Oh yeah, I mean, just I mean, she grabs her by the chest, and they have this whole "Don't touch her again." And I'm, it was very disturbing, and I think it's supposed to be. That's the thing is. I'm sitting here going like, oh, I'm freaked out and eked out by this. And that's exactly the point. They Craven wants me to be really uncomfortable with this. Definitely. And, and success. <laughs> but is it, it was too, very uncomfortable many times, but is it too successful? Does it try too hard to be uncomfortable and thus completely fail as a movie? See, yeah, I would argue well, yes, because it puts me out. Go ahead, Brian. I would argue yes as well. I mean, to, to me, this was just in there. And every time something happened like this, where they're either raping them or even the murders, it was just like, do we really need this in the movie? Because it does nothing other than go, Ugh, hurry up. Yeah, I have to admit, most of this I watched um, watched in quotation marks. Because uh, I just let it run in the background on my laptop while I uh, watched Saturday Night Saturday Night Live recordings as like a palate cleanser. <laughs> oh well, yeah, I had this on on the television, and I'm, like, I'm sitting there on my iPad taking notes. And there's a moment on my notes. Let me find it here because it's when I stopped and I just started playing on Facebook again or something, you know, and clicking through like you know watch mojo videos or you know 10 worst things that have ever happened in the history of ever I, I i wrote down to myself this is sick and sadistic and this is the point where i got really disgusted what in the world is going on why was the world this way never mind i don't want to know and that was the last note i wrote about this film so yes i would argue that it completely uh, succeeds and then fails in its goal it succeeds in repulsing me to the point that I don't want to watch it anymore. And I really, like, I watched 
probably the last 10 minutes of this with the sound down where I could just barely hear it because I realized there was nothing that was going to be said that friggin' mattered. So I just went well, There wasn't a whole lot of dialogue in the last 10 minutes anyway. I, I turned it back up when Krug and Junior have their standoff and he convinces Junior to blow his head off because I wanted to hear what he was saying. And he just repeats the same three lines over and over again. Right. And, and yeah. he convinces him to do it. And that's, you know, Junior supposedly has a change so, of heart. So you're so. telling me you missed the whole dialogue from the blowjob scene? Uh, I heard it and paid no mind to it. So I couldn't tell you what was said. I just, oh. It's something about oh, I can make love just... to you with, with my hands tied behind my oh. back. Because when they showed that, I was like, well, they obviously set that up. So You missed the best parts then where he's talking about how he can come over and over and over again and how he's going to come for her and how she's going to make him come and how he's going to come now. and how... Oh, God. I, I'm it? glad I'm I come missed, over and over again. I am glad I missed every single bit of that. Thank you for recreating <laughs> it for me. I won't sleep for a week. <laughs> was that like a new term or something? That they in the seventies, I mean, this, well, was, let's were, see. When was Deep Throat? That's what I was about to say. When did Deep Throat come out? <laughs> well, that would have been around something. Yeah, they've been around the same time because we're talking about you know that happened to the Nixon and all that Deep Throat. Came out in the seventies or the late sixties. Seventy-two. I looked it up. Seventy-two. We're right there. Maybe oh. it was right in there, and I'm certain Deep Throat wasn't the first film to use that term. So maybe no. it was. Maybe it was new. And that, again, that's why they put it in there. And uh, they put it in there. It's why the actor decided to go with it. Craven wouldn't have known that if you'd have slung it at him. <laughs> that, that's what's so funny about this. You know, everybody's like, "Oh, Wes Craven used to be a Baptist minister. How could he dare do this?" Wes Craven didn't write a word of this. He just came up with the scenario and these actors just went with it. So wh whoever Fred Lincoln was in his sick, twisted self, he'd probably seen Deep Throat, you know, or something like that, and probably had been a part of you know, some of that stuff, and it's, you know, been to the, the dirty movie theater and all that, and just went with it. And it, and most likely was sitting there going like, this thing's getting cut. They ain't never gonna let a line of this in there. And then when he saw it, he was like, holy shit. And it did, yeah. So, yeah. I, I find it fascinating that Deep Throat the movie and Deep Throat the uh, Watergate scandal all happened in the same year. It's fascinating. Uh, anyway, yeah. Yeah. side point. <laughs> that's, well, I mean, that, yeah. that's one of the things about this movie. It got cut several times. Oh, yeah. And it never passed. So Wes Craven put the movie back together the way he wanted it and had a friend give him a NPAA R rating tag off of a different movie that he just <laughs> spliced into his film. And that's how it passed the MPAA. I want to tell you that That's is fantastic. that is the most awesome rebel story ever. I love Wes Craven just for that <laughs> because, again, he was completely blown away by the fact that there was a group of people that could tell him what to put in it. He was so unaware of the MPAA and all. He had no idea any of that even existed. And Cunningham's over there going like, we're never going to get this passed, man. This is never going to go. And he's like, who cares what anybody thinks about it? And uh, poor old Cunningham over there is like, I do. I got 90,000 bucks riding on this. So, I mean, yeah, you know, Cunningham, the ultimate producer, trying to make somehow make a profit out of this thing. And goodness gracious, they did. That's what blows my mind is how they ever got this to go far enough that people would, would pay over and over to see it. I mean, they talk about oh. the exorcist as people were fainting and falling out and throwing up in the theater. I have to imagine it was the same thing for this. Ron, do you know anything about any of that? Um, I know that, uh, Roger Ebert got a lot of hate mail for defending the movie and for giving it a good write-up 
what? which is which is really <laughs> funny because the same guy went and crapped all over uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which to me is a much better movie. Uh, yeah, much better made and much better point. I that and, is, and a much is and, and Michael Rooker's performance in that is just phenomenal. Like to the to really unsettling degree that yeah. this this movie can't match. Oh, it's the best thing he ever did uh, next to Days of Thunder, in my opinion. But I mean, no, it's really the best thing he ever did. It's it's an amazing performance and it's it's a disturbing film in the same right. But I think the other thing is, is the plot here, like the the idea is actually a, a really interesting one. You think you're normal and you're sophisticated. And, you know, look, these people probably thought that they were really forward-thinking because they let their 16-year-old daughter go out to a concert and they got no problem with that and she's not wearing underwear and they're okay with that, even though they're not really sure that's okay, but they're going to let her do it. They're, they're real progressives, you know? And then this happens and they go just as bat crazy as the people who did the stuff to you know, her da their daughter, right? Like, I think the idea of that is an interesting germ, and it's something that I think the 2009 remake does a much better job of playing because there's an actual script and some dialogue and people that know how to deliver it. The, the idea here is neat. The delivery of it, though, again, is so repulsive. It's hard to sit through it. Like, I, I cannot imagine ever watching this again i you know i, I own the dvd because i bought it for a dollar off of amazon it's going to the shooting range with me this weekend like it, that will not not make it past you know many rounds through my my weapon because <laughs> i i never want to see this again like i i I'm, i saw it i did my homework and i never want to talk about it again this well movie is it's ridiculous. it's it's funny how we talked about the smut movies and deep throat and all that stuff because after this movie uh fred lincoln the Come guy directs like all the porn. <laughs> I can totally God. believe it now. That I, I makes went total sense. Up, I pulled him up on IMDb to try to find something out about him, and we've got uh, all kinds of just anal intruder ten. I, 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 can, I can imagine it's like the <laughs> list that Randall reads in in Clerks. You know, it, it that, basically <laughs> is yeah, yeah. That he probably he probably directed half of this. You know, that Smith and, and his guys were laying it on. And, and you're I, right about this being like a compelling story, but if you want to see it done in a way a that is not... a story? Well, it's an interesting idea. The mm -hmm. the what, dry, what turns normal people into killers. If you want the good version of this, just go watch The Virgin Spring, the Ingmar Bergman movie, because that's, that's where they got this idea. And I I have not seen that one, but I can only imagine it's much more palatable than this one is. Well, it's it's Max von Sydow. Oh, well, then never awesome. mind. Yeah. So okay. Well, then yeah. The the class in that one is up by a factor of four hundred at this point. So I I want to make something clear because I hear Brian rustling against it there, and I would not at any time say that this is worthwhile art to watch young women brutalized and to, made to brutalize each other and all of the sick sadistic sexual shit that happens in this movie no not at all i'm not i'm not gonna even call that entertainment the idea though again of if these awful things happened and the awful people it would take to do them to someone what if it turns out your normal square parents could be just as awful if pushed the right way like that idea is is interesting and fascinating it's delivered poorly but the idea is interesting to me so can, can i just say that that this movie was uh, named at one point "Sex Crime of the Century," Ugh, awful. and and Krug and Company 
And then finally, the men's room. Wow. Before settling upon the last house. Like, can we talk about the title? Are we to assume that Mary's house is the last house on the left or where they got kidnapped was the last house on the left? What are we supposed to come with that? I think it's her house is the last house on the left because they talk about it being so close. Is it to the Canada. last house on the west left on the way out of town? I, it's on the last on the way out of the country is the way I took it because country. they they're going to Canada. They're trying to escape. Yeah, you know, they've escaped prison and they're on their way to Canada. That's dropped by the mysterious radio voice and the inept police um, throughout the film. Oh, that was when mean, I had uh, the volume up though, Brian. So they, they, it may have changed, but that was what I understood at that point. All right. So you are are you telling me, Jay, that you don't believe uh, the all exposition radio station was a good plot device? <laughs> all exposition ninety five point six. Yeah, no, yeah, really. Thanks I, for the idea. <laughs> I mean, really, yeah, that yeah, that was. Uh, it's a exposition well, <laughs> from the seventies, eighties, and today. Exactly, it's it's perfect. <laughs> That that way, no, it was a character. In fact, it was some of the better delivered lines. The dogs' barks were also very good on cue. Um, I, I will say that that little little rat thing um, was cute, and I, I really expected it to get like killed and thrown in a tree, and they eat it. You know, like at, at some point, I thought this movie's just going to do everything to to offend me and, and bother me. So why not? I mean, I figured they would go there. I'm glad they didn't. I'm glad Muffin survived, but um, or whatever its name was. But yeah, I, I can't imagine this movie being any more repulsive than it was. But I mean, I, I did not see the uncut version. Thank goodness. I, I don't know what that would look like, but I, I don't want. Oh, let me tell you, there's a lesbian rape scene in the uh, lost scenes list. But that's implied. Also, that's implied that they make. Phyllis do that to Mary like you almost see that no, well so we we yeah we have yeah right so that's true they have the two female victims forced to do things to each other but also Mary raped by Sadie oh okay so she got Phyllis first and then she went back for Mary I assume I, yeah I so if you get the uncut DVD you can see that scene if you really want to I'd rather not, and I don't recommend either of you do it either. So, um, so I well, that Brian, you and I watched the same version of it. Ron, which one did you watch of it? Um, I I think I watched the one that that you guys watched. Oh, never mind. Yeah, you did because I ripped my yeah. DVD. Oh, that's so right. Yeah. Let me let me cut that. So never mind. So okay. <laughs> anyway, interesting okay. note in the Krug and Company cut. Mary is still alive when her parents find her. Yeah, uh, that's actually something they hang on to in the remake. The girl, as a matter of fact, does not die. They they find her shot and well, wounded, she dies. But, but after well, no, but she I, tells her parents what happened. No, but I, I'm talking about in the remake. They hold on to that, but she actually lives. It's Sarah Paxton who, who plays her, and she lives till the end. Spoiler alert. So um, the, they do change that in the new one. But I didn't realize that she survived. I thought she was dead. I mean, she looked. Well, she, she was in the in yeah. the final movie, but in the mm. Krug and Company Com version of the, the movie, the Krug and Company version, she's that alive. Like and the parents find her, which I, I thought she was faking her her death at first. They shot yeah. at her, and I thought she was faking it, but then they shot her like sixteen times. So I was like, well, okay, she's yeah, probably dead now. With a gun that only holds five rounds, by the way, which yeah, yeah well, that was that was nice editing details. <laughs> Clearly <laughs> not paid. Which yeah. is weird because they established that the, there's only one shell in the shotgun. 
Right, but that... but but the pistol was you know <laughs> unending ammo. Well, they had the unending ammo pack there, and then they left it when they washed in the the creek. So um, I th- I also read something, and you guys well, tell me if you, took, if you took it this way, is that them washing off in the creek is supposed to be them coming to terms with the fact that they've crossed the final line of decency and humanity left in themselves and they're supposed Please. to like be somewhat redeemed and I'm like no I think they were just washing the blood off themselves they like, were I, I didn't get that it's at gross all. yeah I mean you've been walking around with somebody's hand and and her guts in your hand all day that's not something you just yeah you know, when did they carve her hand off did they use that big machete to do that I, that's what I was wondering because that little switchblade sure enough wasn't going to do it I mean, it <laughs> would but it'd be like that cat that got stuck in the canyons and took days to do it so that no they didn't do that hanging out in the woods and then go catch Mary and Junior. But well, guys, I think we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, popcorn ratings. So, what are yours for Last House on the Left? Ron, we'll start with you. Uh, is there a size smaller than small? Oh yes, you have to listen to some of our reviews. <laughs> I mean, I, I could go as high as a small popcorn, um, just because there are. It's very successful at making me feel very uncomfortable and making me want to Windex my television after watching it to try to get some of that grime off of it. But it's not entertaining. It's not witty. It's not fun. It's not even particularly like psychological. It's just more like venal. It's It doesn't affect the brain. It turns the stomach. Okay, Brian, yours. Uh, this is a popcorn so burnt you have to leave the house because it stinks so bad. <laughs> Movie. It. I am dumbfounded that I even made it through watching this whole thing. I think it's the torture of the Leprechaun movies that have allowed me to do that. <laughs> but, but, but that said, I, I don't think I've scratched my head in wonder more times watching a movie since we watched the room. I can't put it any lower than you two have. It's below a small, I'll actually say this. It is the worst thing I've ever had to sit through and watch. It's not the worst movie ever made. That's still after last season, but it is, it is the worst time I've ever had reviewing something, even though I knew it would be enjoyable to, to rip it to shreds with you two guys a little bit. I, had no joy in watching any of this. There was nothing about it that I I thought was redeemable at all. And to the credit, neither one of these guys ever went back down this far of the rabbit hole again, especially Craven. Like he spent, in fact, a lot of his career trying to purposely not do this again. Um, maybe because he exercised it out of himself. I don't know. Is there a, a germ of something here that makes this film quote important? I don't know. I, I have a hard time saying that because I'm so repulsed by it. If that's the goal of this film, though, it succeeds. But it's also so repulsive that I can't watch it. And I wouldn't recommend anyone else ever do it either. Um, It's a curious way to start what are going to become two of the most famous horror franchises ever for us, though. Because I'll spoil it now. I like both of these franchises. I have a lot of fun in these and they're a lot more fun than this thing ever would purport to be. And I'm I'm kind of glad that none of this really is ever going to hang around in those coming series for us. Agreed. 
Yeah, I mean, if you if you want to watch a movie that's probably more unpleasant than this, go with "I Spit on Your Grave." Um, but I don't know why you would want to do that, and it would make me question your mental state if you chose to do that route. Although, <laughs> if although I do have "I Spit on Your Grave" on DVD because I bought it for the Joe Bob Briggs commentary. Which is incredible. <laughs> I'm sure that would make it enjoyable, but uh, there's nothing about watching this that that uh, is redeeming. But thank goodness this isn't the end of something. This is the beginning of something. This is going to be the biggest and longest Shocktober we've ever had because it's going to start in friggin' August and go <laughs> all the way through. And you know we've been doing this every other week release thing, and and that's cool. And really appreciate people hanging in there with us while we've kind of stretched out the summer and and into the early fall. But coming. Starting this week, as a matter of fact, you're going to start getting two podcasts a week from us all the way through the the last full week of October. You're going to get Friday the 13th movies to start out with, and then when the numbers even up, you're going to get a Friday movie on one day, and you're going to get a Nightmare movie on the other day. Bron, you're going to review the Friday the 13th movies with me. That's all, you know, one through eight, Jason Goes to Hell, Jason X, the 2009 remake, and Brian, you're going to do Nightmare on Elm Street, one through six, New Nightmare, and the 2010 remake with me, and then we're going to skip one in the order there. We're going out of order with it. We're going to culminate right before Halloween with Freddy versus Jason with all of us reunited to just sort of end our Shocktober. But I'm excited about it, fellas. It's been a while since I sat and watched through those series and doing both of them at the same time. It's going to be fun to, to have, have them comparing side by side with one another. Don't cross your streams. <laughs> well, we are definitely going to be crossing streams and all kinds of things, but you know, we we've done two of the big, what I call the big four horror series. We've done Hellraiser, we've done Halloween, and we've done the lesser ones. We've done Critters and Leprechaun, you know, and, and we yeah, we've done some one-offs and stuff. It was time to get to the other two big ones, and and we were thinking about oh well, we'll do one this year and one the next year or whatever, and then we were like. Eh, there's no time like the present. Let's do them both now because they do cross over at the end and it makes it perfect to do that. So I'm excited about this. This will be fun to talk about with you two guys and to go through with everybody as we do a long fall of, of Shocktober uh, here for us. Of course, you can find tons of other reviews. We've referenced a lot of them tonight in our archive section. Go to our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies. Subscribe to us on iTunes. You can get back through all of the episodes there. We've got... As we said, Leprechaun movies, Critters movies. We've even got American Ninja movies, a couple Chuck Norris flicks in there I've done with Ron. We've got some, you know, Tales from the Crypt. We've got even, you know, going way back, some, you know, stuff like No Holds Barred and yes. all kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some there's some real fun in the old, the old uh, continuous play <laughs> gift bag, if you will. In fact, if you're in the Santa mood, we've got Santa's Slay. I dare you to go check that one out, folks. That's uh, fantastic. So, especially if you're a Bill Gold. Goldberg wrestling fan like that's a must watch right there so and much and much better dialogue than this film I promise you so um, believe but, it or not that's true that's right. and Brian <laughs> you and I still have seven seasons of Buffy reviews out there and like new people find that podcast all the time the art of slay oh yeah we get people commenting on it uh, once a couple every couple weeks it's crazy 
Yeah, it's but. it's wild to think that that's still big, but it is. So uh, all out there, and of course, you know, folks, you can read Ron's stuff over at Den of Geek. You're reviewing, you've been reviewing Game of Thrones, The Walking Dead shows, all kinds of stuff that you're writing about, and uh, people can find you there as well. I'm doing the new Preacher show, so that'll be fun. Oh, that will be a lot of fun. So, yeah, lots of cool stuff uh, out there from your crew here at Continuous Play. And, of course, as always, we appreciate your support. And if you do subscribe on iTunes, leave us a good review. That helps other people find the show and the podcast, and we uh, will definitely appreciate your support. We do this show because we like talking about movies, sometimes really bad ones together, uh, if for nothing more than to uh, heal each other from the experience. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> uh, so. Until next time, for Brian and Ron, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121.